We pray this. Amen. I want to invite you, if you have your Bible, uh, to open to Revelation chapter 10. Uh, I've been gone for uh, the last four Sundays, but we are going to return to our, uh, our study of the book of Revelation. Let me just get organized here. This might seem really weird to you, uh, but for me as a pastor who often speaks, I had the privilege of being involved in uh, my sister-in-law's funeral at a church in BC, and I loved the pulpit that they had. It was, it was, and and so you maybe never thought about that, but I'm like, oh, it'd be so nice to have one like that. But anyways, I'm organized. Revelation chapter 10. Uh, we're going to continue our study, our walk through the book of Revelation. Uh, we live today in what many call the digital age. Uh, computers, cell phones, internet. Uh, as hard as it is to believe for some of you who are young, um, those things haven't always been around. I mean, my kids have never known life without home computers and internet, but it hasn't always been around. The last few decades have seen incredible change. Uh, I remember as a kid, life before home computers, before internet, and now, according to Google at least, 86% of Canadians have smartphones in their pockets or their purses. Uh, that is a computer, essentially, that is far more powerful than anything I ever knew as a kid. 86% of us. Now, uh, I think there's good things about that. There's clearly some bad things about that. Uh, that's not my point this morning. I simply want to make this observation. For many of us, uh, perhaps for most of us, having a smartphone has radically changed what we do while we wait. Whether we're waiting for an appointment to start or a class to start or we're waiting for family members or a friend, uh, having a smartphone, having this computer has radically changed for many, if not all of us, what we do while we wait. We check our email, we surf the web, we update our social media pages, we read the news, we play a game, sometimes without thinking. I have started paying more attention to my digital habits, and I am learning more and more often to make the decision to leave my phone down and to simply look around me like we used to in the olden days, to, to pray to think and reflect on different things. I'm, I'm learning to use that time, not always, but more and more often, I'm learning to do different things while I wait. Now, perhaps uh, many of us have not given much time or much thought to what we do in our daily lives while we wait. But that is uh, where this text leads us to focus this morning. It is precisely about what we do while we wait. As God's people, as those who put our faith in Jesus and are His disciples, uh, what do we do while we wait? While we wait for the ushering in, in all its fullness, God's kingdom. While we wait for His return. While we wait. Now, uh, before we turn to that, I do want to take a few minutes because we've been out of the book of Revelation for a while, and perhaps some of you are joining us uh, for the first time or early on. Uh, you haven't caught many of these. I want to review where we've come in Revelation to bring us up to speed before we dive into chapters 10 and 11 this morning. Now, the Revelation is, you'll recall, that the title is 
the apocalypse, the revelation, the unveiling. Uh, this is a uh, strange kind of literature, strange to us. It uses symbols and imagery to communicate theological truths to us. And through this book, this revelation, Jesus is revealing to John and to the church, to us, uh, what is really real, what is really true. Things that we cannot see with our physical eyes, but things that nonetheless are very much real. Uh, chapter 1 introduces us to the book, to, to the uh, disciple John, who is now in his mid-80s. Uh, he's been exiled by the Roman Empire onto the island of Patmos, about 40 miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey, to die. He has been placed there, and on the Lord's Day, he is worshiping. He's in the Spirit, and he hears a loud voice like a trumpet, and he turns to see the voice, and there before him is the Jesus he followed, now in glory, the exalted Christ before him. And Jesus commissions John to write what he sees and send it to the churches. Chapters 2 and 3, John recounts messages from Jesus to seven particular churches that are uh, in the province of Asia, modern-day Turkey, on an ancient postal route. And each church receives, uh, in some cases, either or, but is affirmed for what is good and is uh, challenged, exhorted on what is not good and warned to be ready for what is to come. That is, Jesus wants to prepare the church, call them to faithfulness, call them to repentance, encourage them in what is good for what is about to come, the great crisis that lies ahead for them. They are about to face great suffering at the hands of the Roman Empire. Chapters 4 and 5 recount for us John's vision of the heavenly throne room. John is called up to heaven where he looks through a door and he sees into heaven the throne that is above every other throne and God Almighty, glorious and majestic and powerful sitting upon the throne. And, and God has in his hand a, a scroll, a scroll of destiny, a scroll that contains within it all of God's purposes for redemption and judgment. And you may recall in that scene that John begins to weep because a great angel cries out, who is worthy to open the scroll? Who is worthy to bring to fulfillment God's purposes? And there's no one found in all of creation. And an elder comes to John as he weeps and says, John, don't weep. The Lion of Judah is worthy. And John looks, anticipating seeing the Lion of Judah, and he sees a lamb that was slain. He sees Christ crucified, who is worthy to bring to fulfillment all of God's purposes and plans for redemption and judgment. Now chapter 6 brings us to the first of a number of sets of seven that we encounter in the book of Revelation. Specifically, chapter 6 brings us to the seven seals. Now, I contended that the breaking of the seals, uh, that the, the seals are really kind of like a movie trailer, that they introduce us to the themes, the major themes that we will encounter through the rest of the book and the basic plot line. They are not the story themselves, but they are uh, introducing us to the themes. The first four show us the, the, the effects of human sin, violence and war and famine and death. The fifth and sixth seal. First, the fifth introduces us to the martyrs, that is, those who follow Christ and have lost their lives. And then the sixth, we see a great earthquake and the inhabitants of the earth crying out a key question in the book of Revelation. Who can stand? In the day of judgment, in the day of God's wrath, who can stand? And after the sixth seal, with one seal left to be broken, one seal on that scroll of destiny in God's hand, we come to this interlude where there are two visions. And those two visions answer the question asked, 
Who can stand? And what's the answer? The people of God can stand. Those redeemed by the Lamb can stand. Those who've been marked by Christ, they can stand. And then we came to the seventh seal broken. Last time we were together, we looked at chapters 8 and 9. And right at the beginning of chapter 8, the seventh seal is broken. And that seventh seal being opened brings us to the next set of seven, seven trumpet blasts. And through chapters 8 and 9, we walked through the first six of those seven trumpet blasts. And they were, every trumpet blast was, was an act of God's judgment upon the earth. Now, one thing that we noted, you may recall, is that we encountered this language of one-third over and over and over again throughout those chapters. A third of the earth, a third of the trees, a third of the sea, a third of the sea creatures, a third of the ships, a third of the fresh water, a third of the day and a third of the night without light, a third of the world's people. And the significance of that is not statistical, it's symbolic. Uh, What that tells us is that those judgments of God are not the final judgment. They are not complete, they are partial They are God's warning, God's invitation, God's cry to humanity in rebellion against Him to come to Him in repentance and believe, to receive His grace, to receive His mercy. And yet at the end, we saw that humanity still did not repent. We read in verse 20 of chapter 9, the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the works of their hands. That's where we pick things up today. Now, I've said this before. Remember the seals, chapter 6 and 7. I just want to remind you of the structure that we walked through. The breaking of the seals happened with a set of four, a set of two, right? The four horsemen, martyrs under the altar, and then the earthquake of judgment. And then we came to chapter 7, which was this two-part interlude, answering the question, who can stand? And then we had the seventh seal broken. Now, as we came to the trumpets, we have followed the same structure. We, we've seen or heard the first six trumpet blasts, and today we would come to what? If we are expecting it to follow the same pattern, we come to the same thing, an interlude, a two-part interlude, followed by the blast of the seventh trumpet. Now, that's what we are going to find today. That's what we're working through today in chapters 10 and 11. And so, it's fairly long text, so rather than me reading it all in one shot, we're going to read it in those three chunks. Okay, so we're coming into a two-part vision of an interlude. So we're going to look at the first uh, part of the interlude about a mighty angel and a little scroll. Then the second interlude vision about two witnesses. And then the third part, the seventh trumpet. So that's how we'll make our way. So if you have your Bibles, follow along as we look at the first part of the interlude, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 10. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head. His face was like the sun and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion. When he shouted, the voices of the seven thunders spoke, and when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, Seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, There will be no more delay, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets." 
Then the voice that I heard from heaven spoke to me once more, go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. So our text begins by introducing us to another mighty angel. You may recall, if you've been with us, we encountered a mighty angel uh, back earlier in chapter 5. Chapter 5 was when John was having his vision of the heavenly throne room, and he saw the one sitting on the throne who had the scroll that was sealed with seven seals in his right hand, and, and a mighty angel came and cried out, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who is worthy to bring to fulfillment to accomplish all of God's purposes for humanity? His purposes for judgment and redemption. And at that point, John wept because no one was found in all of creation. Well, here we meet another mighty angel. Here, John, clearly located at this point in the, in the drama of Revelation, back on earth, John looks and he sees another mighty angel descending from heaven down to earth. We read this description of him. He holds in his hand a little scroll. Now, this probably reminds us of the scroll uh, that was sealed with seven seals that was in the right hand of the one who sat on the throne in the center of uh, his, in, in the John's vision of the heavenly throne room, the throne that is above every other throne. But I want to contend that this is a different scroll. Uh, the, the, the word in the original here means little scroll. It's a different word, and I think that's intentional to distinguish it from the earlier scroll. This mighty angel holds a little scroll in his hand. Now, this angel is robed in a cloud, a rainbow above his head, probably a, a halo is what is being uh, spoken of. His face was like the sun. His legs were like fiery pillars. Now, much of this language is reminiscent of earlier descriptions of Jesus or from other Old Testament texts. Some of this language uh, we recognize from the prophets, from, from Daniel, from Ezekiel. Uh, in fact, there are some who conclude, because of some of the ways in which language here uh, is, is echoed from the description of Christ in chapter 1 of Revelation itself, that this is in fact Jesus. But I would contend that it's not for two major reasons. One, Jesus is never called an angel, ever. That language is never used of Jesus. And this angel, this mighty angel, will in a moment swear uh, an oath in, in the name of God. And that would be odd indeed if this was Christ, the Son, uh, part of the Godhead. So no, this is not Christ. This is a mighty angel who stands in the presence of God and therefore reflects the glory and the majesty and the might of God. John watches and this mighty angel descends from heaven to earth and this angel puts his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And this is significant. Uh, this angel reflecting the glory of God, this angel momentarily who will swear an oath in the name of God who created the sea and the land, stands on the sea and the land. And, and that is significant. It is a demonstration of God's sovereign rule over both the sea and the land. And that's significant because in chapter 13, and John does this over and over in the Revelation, he, he drops these little hints, these, he alludes to things that are coming up. In chapter 13, we are going to be introduced to two beasts, one that comes out of the sea and one that comes out of the land. 
And here we see symbolically this mighty, mighty angel reflecting the glory and majesty and power of God standing on the sea and the land to say God is sovereign over these realms, over the sea and the land. Now, the angel gives a loud shout like the roar of a lion. And then we come to this little bit about the seven thunders. Let me read that again. When he shouted, the voice the voices of the seven thunders spoke. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. Now, I don't know about you, but that could leave us a little bit curious, don't you think? I mean, it reminds me of the last verse in John's gospel. Some of you will be familiar with that. John in his gospel concludes his gospel this way. <clears throat> Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Doesn't that kind of intrigue you? There are other encounters that Jesus had with people, other miracles, signs and wonders, other things that Jesus said that, that we don't have. And, and it's just like, tell us, don't, don't you want to know more of that? These things that could fill uh, more books than there would be room for? Well, here, the seven thunders speak, and John prepares to write down what the seven thunders say, and he hears a voice from heaven that says, do not write it down. Now, the truth is, we don't know what the seven thunders said. We, we don't know what exactly the seven thunders are. We're not told. And I would contend that it's, it's unhelpful for us to speculate. Uh, we cannot know. In fact, I would suggest ultimately the point of this little seven thunders bit in the drama of Revelation is to say that there are things that we have not been told. That there are things that we don't need to know that we might want to know, but we, we don't know at all. And if we did need to know it, God would have told us. But God said, do not write it down, John. There are things that we have not been told. There are things that we do not need to hear. Now at this point, the angel raises his right hand to heaven and swears an oath and says, there will be no more delay. No more delay. Now, things get complicated here, or more complicated, I would say. He says there's no more delay. So presumably, as we are walking through the drama of Revelation, we would expect the imminent conclusion to history, the consummation of God's kingdom. We would expect the end, no more delay. But clearly it does not mean that because the end didn't come imminently. In fact, we living here almost 2,000 years later, the end has still not come. So how are we to understand these words, uh, there will be no more delay? Well, let's look at what he says Immediately after that, there will be no more delay, but in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet. Listen to that again. When the seventh angel, in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. He speaks of a period of time before the seventh angel sounds his trumpet. The first six trumpets have already been blast, blasted. Those were God's... Uh, judgment on humanity, but they were partial judgments. They were not total. They were warnings, if you will. They, they signify to us an opportunity still for humanity to repent and trust Christ, to receive life. There is a period of time before the seventh trumpet will be sounded, and in that time the mystery of God that was announced to his servants, the prophets, will be fulfilled. I would contend that the mystery of God is God's purposes for judgment and redemption. 
Uh, it is the content of the scroll of destiny, the scroll that was in God's hand with seven seals. So God's purposes are now uh, irrevocably set in motion. They will be accomplished in this period of time leading up to the blowing of the seventh trumpet. Now the question that would arise or the conclusion that we might come to is that the seventh trumpet blast will therefore bring all things to an end, will be the end of human history. That may be what we expect. But at this point in the narrative, uh, let's just move on. We'll come back to that in a minute. At this point in the narrative, we encounter something quite unique. Until this point in the drama of Revelation, John has, for the most part, he has simply been seeing and hearing. He's played a few cameo roles. He, in chapter 5, in the throne room vision, he wept when there was no one worthy found to break the seals. In chapter 7, he was engaged in a dialogue with one of the 24 elders. But for the most part, he has simply seen and heard. But here, he plays a major role. In verse 8, the voice from heaven tells John to go to the mighty angel who's standing on the sea and the land and to take the scroll that lies open in the hand of that angel. John does. He goes and he asks for the scroll, and the angel tells him to eat it. Take it and eat it. It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. Now John does what he is told. He takes that scroll, he eats the scroll, and it is sweet in his mouth, but turns his stomach sour. What's that all about? Well, look at what John is told next. You must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. You must prophesy again. John was commissioned earlier on in the book to write what he saw. Now he is commissioned to prophesy again. Prophesying, of course, is what? It's not so much, certainly not strictly speaking about the future. Prophesying is declaring the words of God. John is called to proclaim God's words to many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. He is commissioned again. So what's the deal with this sweet in your mouth and sour in your stomach bit? Well, John, as he declares God's word, there is a sweetness to that. There is a a joy in proclaiming God's word, and yet he knows that proclaiming God's word means two things. It means judgment for all those who reject Christ, those who continue and persist in their rebellion, and he knows that it means suffering for the people of God, and so his stomach turns sour. That's the point. He is commissioned to prophesy again. And there is a sweetness in that task, but there is a sourness to it as well. But his job is not done, though he is old, though he is in exile. He is called to prophesy more. We turn to the second vision of this interlude between the six first trumpet blasts and the final seventh one. If you have your Bibles, follow again. I'll read verses 1 to 14 of chapter 11. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers, but exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months and I will appoint my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. They are the two olive trees and the two lampstands and they stand before the Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. They have power to shut up the heavens so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. 
Now, when they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of that great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from every people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had, tor had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake, and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming. The first interlude vision is directed at John. He is called to prophesy again. The second interlude vision is about these two witnesses. Throughout the Revelation... <clears throat> Throughout the Revelation thus far, we have encountered a whole variety of imagery and symbolism, uh, many allusions that come directly from the Old Testament, particularly the prophets, but from elsewhere in the Old Testament. At this point, in this part of the interlude, it gets really, really dense full of so much, and we simply don't have time to unpack everything, but I want to walk through it with you and try and uh, highlight as much as I can, and then once we've kind of got a, a sense of what the imagery symbolism is getting at, what it's pointing to, then I want to step back in and try and explain to you what is going on here, the meaning of this section of the text. Verse 1, <clears throat> John is told to measure the temple. Now, there are two different words in Greek for temple. One uh, speaks of the entire temple precinct. That includes the, the temple building itself and the courtyard, the various courts around the temple. The other word speaks of the building itself, the, the holy place and the holy of holies. The word here is the one for just the building. John is told to measure just the building, the temple, the, the holy place and the holy of holies, the place where God dwells. Now, in the drama of Revelation, this cannot mean literally the temple in Jerusalem. Why not? Well, because Jerusalem and the temple don't exist. They have been destroyed some 25 years earlier. This is the mid-90s, and that does not exist. The temple in Jerusalem has been raised to the ground. There's a pile of rubble. But how are we to understand the temple? Well, throughout Paul in the New Testament, over and over and over again, we know that the temple is the people of God. The temple, uh, in the Old Testament, we know the temple was the place of God's presence, and that, in the New Testament, becomes His people. And, and we, we, I've traced that out before. Remember Jacob in the Old Testament, when he's running from his brother, he, he is fleeing, he lays down and puts his head on a rock, and he dreams... And in his dream, he sees a ladder that reaches from earth to heaven. And that place ends up being named what? He names it Bethel, the place of God's presence, the house of God. And, and then we see God's presence at Mount Sinai. We see God's presence fill the tabernacle. When Solomon builds the temple, God's presence fills the temple. And, and then when Jesus comes, remember Jesus calls the disciple Nathaniel, and he says, Nathaniel, I saw you when you were still sitting under the fig tree. And Nathaniel's like, whoa, that's pretty cool. And Jesus says, that's nothing. 
you will see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's a reference to Jacob's vision. Jesus is saying, I am now Bethel. I am the place of God's presence. And when Jesus departs after his ascension, after his death and his resurrection, Jesus pours out his spirit, his presence on his people. The temple of God is the people of God. It is you and I who have put our faith in Jesus. John is told to measure the temple. He is told to measure the people of God, the place where God dwells. Now, this is a difficult text to figure out all the particulars, and I want to just say this as a disclaimer. Even if we screw up some of the details, the the overall thrust of the text is incredibly clear, and, and you will see that in a few moments. What does it mean for John to measure the people of God, the temple of God? Well, I would suggest that it is in some ways similar to what happens in, in the interlude vision in chapter 7, after the sixth seal, when God's people are marked. They are sealed. They are identified as his people. That is, there there is a sense of protection and preservation, though they will suffer. I would suggest something similar is going on here. Uh, Here, likely the imagery of measuring the temple comes from the book of Zechariah, the Old Testament, one of the minor prophets. In Zechariah, we read of a man who shows up with a measuring uh, line in his hand, and he says he has come to measure Jerusalem, the city of God. Uh, And he says, in that context, God says this, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it, and I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. So this connection between measuring and God's presence and God being a wall around his people, I think is what is getting on. John is told to measure the people of God, the temple. This speaks of God identifying and preserving, securing, not insulating from suffering but being with and keeping God's people safe. And we read there's this distinction made between the temple building itself, the people of God where God dwells, and the courts. We read that the courts will be trampled upon by the Gentiles. Here's what Daryl Johnson writes in this regard. God will protect the inner sanctuary, the Holy of Holies, where his new priesthood bought by the blood of the Lamb now lives. But the outer court where people live who are not yet part of his new priesthood is not protected. It cannot be protected. It can only be converted or judged. We read here in chapter 11 that the Gentiles will trample. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. The outer court is excluded and it will be trampled upon. For 42 months, again, like numbers in the Revelation, I want to contend that 42 months is a symbol, not a statistic like all the numbers in Revelation. 42 months is equal to three and a half years, which is equal to 1,260 days, which we will encounter momentarily here in chapter 11. Uh, In chapter 12, we're going to come to an expression that's time, times, and half a time, which also time, one year, times, two year, and half a time, half a year, is three and a half years. So three and a half years, time, times, and half a time, 42 months, 1,260 days, all getting at the same thing, just symbolic ways speaking of that. Now, uh, what does this 42 months stand for? Well, here in the vision, in the drama of Revelation, 42 months is the period of time that the holy city, that is the temple of God, Jerusalem, that's what that means, is trampled upon. The Gentiles will trample upon the holy city for 42 months. Will trample on the people of God for 42 months. God's witnesses, whom we're going to be introduced to in verse 3, will prophesy for 1260 days, which is 42 months, the same period of time. 
Now, historically, there was a point in time in 167 B.C., almost 300 years before John wrote this, where Antiochus, who was a wicked Syrian king, uh, invaded Israel, Jerusalem, and Israel suffered terribly. And so in their historic memory, 42 months was a, 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 became a standard symbol for a limited period of time of suffering. A, a limited period of time during which it would appear that evil was, was reigning. Now back to the witnesses that we meet in verse 3. Here's what we read. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy, that is, they will declare my words for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These witnesses will prophesy during this same period of time during which the Gentiles, the inhabitants of the earth, those who are in rebellion against God, will trample on the people of God. Uh, It will seem during this time that evil is conquering, that evil is victorious. And these witnesses will be wearing sackcloth. Sackcloth was the garments of the prophets. It was a sign of repentance. In verse 4, we read this. These two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now, the background of that, again, is the book of Zechariah. We can't trace all of this out. But simply uh, know this. These two olive trees uh, and the lampstand speaks about the situation in Zechariah where Zerubbabel and Joshua, the high priest, are charged. They're commissioned with rebuilding the temple. And in that context where they are commissioned to rebuild the temple, we read these words in Zechariah, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. The lampstands we encountered back in Revelation 1. Jesus walked among the seven lampstands. That represents the church, the people of God. These witnesses have power to call down fire from heaven, to shut up the sky, which is a clear allusion to the prophet of Elijah, the prophet Elijah in the Old Testament. Uh, they, they can turn waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague, a clear allusion to Moses. This is, I know it's just dense with imagery and illusions, but here's the reality. The two witnesses, the two olive trees, the two lampstands, these, again, are symbolic ways of speaking of the people of God, speaking of the church. These two witnesses who are called to prophesy, who are called to declare God's word in the world while they're being trampled on, while during this period of time when it looks like the world and evil are winning, these two witnesses, when they are done testifying, will be killed by the beasts that come out, the beast that comes out of the abyss, the beast that we have not met yet, but we will meet shortly. The beast will come out of the abyss, attack them and overpower them and kill them. This is language of holy war. We were introduced to that back in chapter 7 in the interlude vision there of the seals when God's people were sealed. They were counted and numbered for war. Remember 12,000 from each tribe. That was, that was about holy war. God's people are going to face a holy war. And here they, they're killed. The witnesses are killed by the beast from the abyss. This will happen, we read, in the great city which is called Sodom and Egypt where the Lord was crucified. What's going on here? The great city? The great city throughout the Revelation is always Rome. Either the city of Rome or the empire of Rome. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, not in the great city. What's going on here? Well, this isn't about geography. It's about theology. Jesus is crucified by this beastly empire of Rome, which is called Sodom and Egypt. Sodom is a symbol of humanity at its uh, worst, immoral and corrupt. Egypt is a symbol of of the world, humanity in, in opposition and rebellion against God. This is not about geography. This is about the forces of evil and humanity in rebellion against God who 
put Christ on a cross. They're killed. The witnesses are killed. And the bodies of the witnesses are refused burial for three and a half days, we read. Three and a half days simply means a brief period, a very brief period, where it looks so very much like evil has won. Like the witnesses have utterly been destroyed. And the inhabitants of the earth celebrate. They celebrate. I mean, they are giddy with joy and delight at the demise, at the death of the witnesses. They this is like Christmas. They're giving gifts to each other. Why? Because the witnesses tormented them. How? By declaring God's truth. When humanity stands in rebellion to God, thumbing their noses at God, saying, we don't need you, we reject you, we reject your ways, we reject your truths, we do not want you then when God's people stand and proclaim the truth of God's love and God's lordship and his kingship and that every one of us will bow before him, either in worship or as we are judged, that that is torment for the world. The world doesn't want to hear it. And so the death of the witnesses brings celebration. The world rejoices because they've been tormented by the witness of the church they celebrate. Demonic forces celebrate because they thought in the death of Christ they won. They got Christ out of the picture, off their backs. Because Jesus confronts us in our sin. He confronts the world in their sin and rebellion. And yet it is on the cross that Christ triumphs. It is the cross that is His victory. And so after three and a half days, a breath of life from God enters them and they live again. And the imagery clearly, Genesis 2, God forming man and breathing into him. Ezekiel 37, the valley of dry bones, God breathing life. God breathes life into the witnesses. Though it looks like death, they are alive. The church is invincible. The church will stand. God will protect it no matter what it might look like. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Witnesses are called up to heaven. There is a great earthquake. Again, a symbol of God's judgment. And like the earlier judgments, this is only partial judgment. Only a tenth of the city destroyed. Only 7,000 were killed. And at this time, we see this wonderful note that the survivors gave glory to God. This is language of repentance that through the witness through the life, the testimony of the two witnesses, through the testimony, through the suffering, through the proclamation of the church, there will be many yet who come to faith, who repent and believe. Now, though there are lots of details here and we may not have them all right, the overall picture could not be more clear. John is commissioned to prophesy again. And the church is called to proclaim truth of the gospel, to bear witness to Christ in the power of the Spirit. Do you know that many of us, we hear about this call to proclaim Christ and we, we're, we're fearful, but the reality is it's not by our own strength and our own ability, it's by the power of the Spirit. The church, as we bear witness, remind you, church, the witnesses were dressed in sackcloth. Sackcloth is a sign of repentance. As we proclaim the truth, as we point people to Jesus, we do so as women and men who know what it is to repent. 
That as we know that we have nothing in ourselves, that we come to the cross empty-handed. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who know they have nothing. They come spiritually bankrupt to receive mercy and grace. We are simply beggars telling other beggars where to find food. That there is hope in Jesus. That there is joy in Jesus. That there is love and acceptance in Jesus. That there is mercy at the foot of the cross. And we call people to Christ as repentant ones. We come finally to the seventh trumpet blast. Would you read with me to the end of the chapter, verse 15 to the end. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who were seated on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. And God's temple in heaven was open, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant, and there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. After the two interlude visions, we come to the sounding of the seventh trumpet. The first six trumpets were partial judgments. We likely anticipate at this point God's final judgment, but that's not what we get. Instead, we are transported from earth to heaven where God is being worshipped again as the one who has begun to reign. The cross of Christ, 2,000 years ago, the cross of Christ, Jesus' death was the moment of victory. Christ began to reign. He is victorious. The battle has been won. And here the hymn of the elders anticipates what yet lies in the future, what we will see unfold in the chapters ahead, the punishment of the wicked and the reward of the servants of God. What is celebrated, what is declared here in this song is the already not yet of God's kingdom. Already Christ has won the victory. Already Christ has begun to reign. Already the time of the end is now breaking into this world. Already the purposes of God are being fulfilled. They are unfolding around us. Already the end is certain, but not yet, though not in doubt, not yet has it come in its fullness. That yet lies in the days ahead. And as we will see as we move into chapter 12, I've talked about how if we come to the Revelation looking for some timeline of chronology through history, this follows this, follows this, follows this, we're going to get lost. We are rather introduced to, we have these visions, these, these pictures of life, in this world, and here we see God's partial judgments. We have this interlude where John is commissioned to prophesy, where the church is commissioned to bear witness to Christ in the midst of all that is going on. And here we have this heavenly vision of worship where we are assured once more that what is coming is already sure. The already not yet of the kingdom, that victory has been won, that the end is certain, though not fully yet arrived. Verse 19, the final verse of chapter 11, is a marvelous vision of the presence and power and glory and majesty of God, a theophany. The temple in heaven is open, the ark that is 
God's people understood the ark to be the very throne of God, the footstool of God, that that was the place of God's presence. And so here in this vision, we see into the temple in heaven, the ark, we see God in His might, His glory, His power, majesty. What is it that Jesus wants to say to us this morning? First, I want to speak to any of you who are here, who are with us online, who have never repented, have never surrendered your life to Jesus, have never truly said, Jesus, only You will satisfy me. Only You can fix what's broken in me. Only You. I surrender to Your Lordship. I surrender my life to You. You are the One who who I will follow, who I will obey, whose grace I need. Will You come to Him in repentance and believe that, that you might receive life. The Gospel, the good news proclaimed in Scripture is not that we clean ourselves up, but that we come to Christ as we are and receive from Him His grace. Jesus went to the cross and He suffered the penalty for sin that through faith in Him we might be forgiven, purified, washed, clothed with His perfection filled with His indwelling Spirit, that we might become the place where He is present. That we might learn to live as subjects of Him. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and it is only in Him that you will ever find satisfaction. You can look and look and look, but I cry out to you today, I urge you, surrender to Jesus. Surrender to the the One who even now calls for you, who has given you an opportunity to come to Him. His judgment is coming. We will come to the seven bowls of God's wrath. And, and that depicts a time when, when, when that opportunity is gone, His judgment will be final. God's desire is that you would know Him, that you would come to faith in Him, that you would be adopted as His daughter, as His son. So I urge you today to hear the witness of the church, to hear the testimony of the Gospel. Repent and believe. Come to Christ. Receive life. Receive mercy. Receive His grace. Experience the joy that you will only find in Him. To those of you here who are believers who have repented and believed, as I said in my opening comments, this is about what we do while we wait. While we wait for the end. While we wait for God's kingdom to arrive in all its fullness. It is so easy to be distracted. It is so easy to spend our time doing things that are inconsequential. Pulling out our smartphone and playing a game that will not enrich your life at all, so to speak. We are called as God's people. We are commissioned to bear witness to Christ. To bear witness to the Gospel. To proclaim in the midst of a lost and dying world the hope that is found in Jesus alone. And we're not called to do that by our own wisdom, our own strength, but by the power of the Spirit. This is what we are commissioned to. This is what's so clear in this interlude vision. John, there's more prophesying to do. Church, there's more testifying, witnessing to do. And even in the face of suffering and opposition, even when it looks like you're losing, the church will prevail because it's the church of Jesus Christ. And we do not do this by our own strength, our own wisdom, our own power, but by the power of the God's indwelling Spirit.
I don't know about you, but as I watch the news these days, not only, certainly not primarily the pandemic news, when I observe the political landscape here in North America, when I see the hatred, the vitriol, the division, when I see evidence of the lies and the insanity, when I see cities burning, I wonder, I wonder what lies ahead. I wonder if we might not be witnessing the end of Western civilization as we've known it. I wonder if this, this sense of, I can hardly wait till life returns to normal, what if normal never happens again? What if this is a wake-up call for the church? What if this is a trumpet blast from God saying, repent to a lost and rebellious, wicked world, calling people to come to Him and repent and receive His grace? Brothers and sisters, we have been commissioned to bear witness, to pour out our lives for the sake of proclaiming the glory of Jesus, the gospel of Jesus. Our mission, making Jesus known, not by our own strength, not by our own creativity, not because we're great, no, but by the power of His Spirit indwelling in us. This is to what we have been called. This is what we are to do while we wait for Christ to come and bring to fulfillment what has already begun at the cross, what He is already doing, and we can do it no matter what we face with confidence in Him. This is the vision that Jesus gave to John for the church. For us, John in his mid-80s, an old man, exiled to the island of Patmos to die. Jesus gives this vision to him and says, John, you need to prophesy yet. You need to share this with my people. You need to proclaim this to my people to prepare them. This is the vision that, that Jesus has given to the church, to us, that we might see that even in the face of opposition, even in the face of suffering, even if it means death, we will win because of Christ, that we can serve Him and proclaim the Gospel, proclaim His name in this lost and dying world with boldness and confidence because of Him. This is a vision Jesus gives us today as we stand on the brink of an unknown future. Unknown to us, but the future is sure. The victory has been won. And now, in these days, we have been given, before the end, before Christ's return, before Christ brings all things to their appointed end, while we wait, we have been called to bear witness. What will we do? What will you do? What will we as a church do? And, and I... I'm going to be really honest, in these days with the pandemic and social distancing and mask wearing and not being able to be with people, it's, I, I'm, I, I'm praying daily, God, how do, we, how do we reach out? How do we do this? How do we serve? And, and there's a lot of challenges we face, but I trust that Christ will lead us, that Christ will use us as we lean into what He has for us. As we say, my life is for you. I want to bear witness to you, the, the hope that I have in you. Apart from you, I have no good thing. But in you, Jesus, you have called me to point other beggars to you where I have found bread. May we passionately, may we joyfully, 
May we confidently be men and women. May we be a church that bears witness to Christ and the hope of the gospel in the midst of whatever may come. Amen.